great to read it on the screen, but if you haven't, please open your Bibles uh, to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Um, it is that book in the Bible, as you've probably grown to see, that kind of uh, gives you these windows to look out of and in, out into the world and really just ponder the realities of life. Uh, the Ecclesiastes author would call it life under the sun, you know, life uh, from a human vantage point, basically. And basically, it's coming to us this morning, if you will, and it's saying to us, um, imagine that you are trapped inside of a house. Okay? So imagine you're trapped inside of a house. I know this probably is not hard for you to imagine at this point in your life, but let's imagine you're trapped inside of a house and all that you know of the outside world is what you can see through the windows that are in your house. Okay? That, that's all you can know of the outside world. Now imagine that this house that you're in is not an actual house. The house represents your life. And the windows are showing you what is real and what is true as you peer out those windows into the world and you're examining these things. That's kind of what Ecclesiastes is doing. And what we find as we peek through the blinds is that all of us see the very same realities. It kind of doesn't depend how nice, on how nice your house is. Right? You could have a wonderful house, like maybe a John's Rub that overlooks Mount Hood and the Sandy River or something like that. And your window in real life probably has a better view than someone else's you know, house that maybe has a neighbor where you can see their trash in their yard or something like that. But in, in the example of what Ecclesiastes is showing us is that our views are really the exact same, no matter how nice your house is. All of us see through the same windows when we peer out into the world. And this is the dominant image of our passage this morning. We're being taken around the house by the hand to look out of these different windows and observe life around us. That's what we're doing. You'll notice the phrases, I saw. It says it seven times. We also see a lot of this introspection that's based upon what is seen. Uh, you'll see uh, the phrase, I said in my heart. He says it a couple of times. Or he says, I thought. He says that another time. And what we see and ponder are not really the most cheery of all topics, right? We've, we've come to expect nothing else than that, really, when we read this book. So we must be warned by what we're about to see. Uh, but what we do find is that God's Word will, once again, provide for us very real truth for our very real lives. And this morning, we're giving uh, these big, wide, floor-to-ceiling windows to look through. And the, re the windows are really uh, showing us the reality of death and the reality of evil in relationships. And if you were with us last week, you might be asking if you're thinking well, um, how in the world, when we consider that God makes everything beautiful in its time, meaning God makes everything fitting in its time, how is it that we can look at these verses that talk about the harshness of death, um, harshnesses of injustice and relational evil on this earth, how is that beautiful? How does God make something like that beautiful in its time? And although it seems like there's only two um, difficult windows of reality to look through this morning, the author is actually going to take us by the shoulders and he's going to point us in a different direction, towards a window that he himself was never actually given the gift of looking through. And I'm just going to call that the window of transforming grace. The window of transforming grace. So this is what I want you to see. It should be on the screen for you, uh, so you can follow along well. It's a bit of a tricky passage here. Um, but first, he's, look, he's just kind of looking around. He's just looking around. We see a summary statement in verse 16, and then chapter 4 is devoted to some of these things that he's talking about in verse 16. 
And then we're going to ask God, like, where do we look then for hope? And he tells us three directions. He tells us to look up in verse 17. He then tells us to look down in verse 18 through 20 of chapter 3. And then finally he tells us to look forward in a direction that he actually has never seen. So first let's look at this. He's just going to look around when we see this in verse 16. Read it again with me. Uh, it says, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So the first thing that he sees in sort of a summary kind of way is this grievous swap. Right? And I think we read this and we know that it's probably bad. But in a real sense, you have to put yourself in his shoes. When you see what he's describing, that should really shock us. Right? Um, I think of another grievous swap. I mean, just imagine it's your birthday and you're expecting a nice new chocolate cake with candles coming your way to blow out, right? Well, let's just imagine someone loads up a humongous portobello mushroom with... Uh, you, right? And you weren't expecting it. It just comes out to you, right? I mean, that would be what? That would be a grievous swap. Like, you would be shocked, right? Like, why? Because in the place of chocolate cake, you're getting the grossest thing a person could ever eat, right? Like, this is, that would be grievous. It would actually shock you. In an even greater way, right? Even though we read verse 16, and it doesn't land with the sort of shock that maybe that would in a really, I don't know, minor way, this is a grievous, grievous swap. This would generate strong emotion because where you would expect to find justice, there's wickedness. And where you would expect to find what is the right thing to do, you find evil. Right? This wasn't just true for Solomon. It's true for us as well. The world hasn't changed much. Right? We look for justice, but we see the innocent convicted while the guilty go free. Right? We see the powerful take advantage of others while the masses praise them. Right? Those with enough money buy their way out of trouble while maybe the single mom working three jobs trying to make ends meet loses her apartment. Right? We see nations struggle in poverty and sickness while governments feast upon them in corruption. We see students who maybe cheat off your test get a full-ride scholarship while you eke out just a little bit of money to pay through for your first semester, right? This naturally and rightfully bothers us, doesn't it? Right? The desire for justice is a very basic human feature. And by justice, what we're talking about is doing what's right in God's eyes. It's righting what's been wronged in God's eyes. And every nation crafts some sort of order and law in order to maintain justice, whether it's justice defined by a dictator, whether it's defined by a king, or whether it's defined by people at large. Every society in human history has done this according to somebody's definition of justice. It's always at play. And even every major world religion has a concern for keeping justice, and often they have rules that are going to guide that. But we don't expect a political or religious system to tell us that we should desire what's being described here, we know it inherently. If you don't believe me, you can just volunteer in kids' ministry, and what you're going to find is words that are popping out of these little kids' mouths saying, that's not fair, right? That's not fair. And no one, they didn't look to somebody else to tell them that. 
Right? We were born with this longing. And so he has this summary statement in verse 16, and then when you go down to chapter 4, he's kind of fleshing it out. He's dressing up what he's seeing in verse 16 with skin and bones in chapter 4 and beyond, and we see that really when we're talking about this idea of wickedness and justice and righteousness, we're talking about relationships, we're talking about how we treat each other. And he notices uh, four evils the first evil, he says, he calls it, I saw all the oppressions, right? We're going to see these by all these phrases, I saw. So look at verses 1 through 3, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead were more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. We all know what oppression is, right? It's taking advantage of other people. It's coercing them. It's even maybe injuring them for your own selfish gain, right? It's to your own advantage. And there are honestly fewer uglier traits in humanity than what we're reading about right here. Right? In the Bible, you guys, it gives a remarkable, remarkable amount of time and energy to addressing the issue of oppression and God is not in favor of it at all. Let's just say it lightly. He denounces it as evil. We see that a sin against man is really a sin against God. And so the Bible itself, it speaks of the oppression of people by maybe a tyrannical king or the oppression of a servant from a tyrannical master or the poor being oppressed by the wealthy. It talks about the needy being oppressed by the bureaucratic. I mean, you can look over the next page in chapter 5, verse 8, and you see, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. Right? We see um, the, the oppression of the foreigner in the Bible, the widow, the fatherless, the unborn. Right? So we got to listen here. Right? According to God, power, whether it's economic, it's political, it's physical, it's meant not to be used against people, but for the good of people. That's what it's designed for. People are never to be treated as objects to be taken advantage of for yourself, right? But they are made in the image of God. So the author, he moves on from this overarching statement of, he says, all the oppressions, and he highlights the position of the oppressed people. Do you see it in verse 1? What does he say? Behold. He says, look at them. Look at them. Behold, the tears of the oppressed. I mean, the word tears actually means deep and sustained weeping. He's basically saying, don't look away. Look at their tears. Watch them. See those people that are sitting there weeping. The, the, the dad and husband who's, who's trying his best to, to work just to make ends meet for the family, but he sits at home at night, doesn't know how he's going to pay for food the next week. You know, think about that woman who is weeping in her room because she's alone and being abused by her husband, and she doesn't know the way out. Think about the child who begs in the streets or the tragic stories of parents who treat their kids in, in really damaging ways. We know that even when we see people who are ultimately their end ends in death, that the loved ones that surround the, the oppressed, I mean, those coffins are the heaviest, Right? 
right? And there's no one there to comfort them. Do you see that? He's saying that not, there's not one there to help them. And not just with words, but with strength, because the word comfort literally means to come alongside somebody with strength. That's what the word comfort means, is to come alongside somebody, not just with words, but with strength. And he says, but notice on the side of the oppressors, there's power, but on the side of the oppressed, there's a vacancy. And then in verses two through three, are probably some of the most shocking verses in the book. We read these verses here and we go, is it even okay to say this, that it's better off to be dead? That's pretty shocking, isn't it? I mean, don't miss that, but how many of us say those kinds of things? I mean, we say things like, I'm not sure I want to bring any more kids into this messed up world. Right? We often say things like that. So as he looks, it becomes unbearable to keep on looking, so much so that he congratulates the dead on being dead. It's better for you. Congratulations, right? You don't have to see this kind of stuff anymore. And can you blame him? When you think of the abortions or the sex trafficking or racism or the abuse and neglect of people behind hidden closed doors, right? So Ecclesiastes knows that we don't enjoy looking at these things. We often want to be distracted and look away, don't we? That's why comedy is helpful, right? We, we often want just to get a little a release, a little bit of a distraction because it's difficult to think about these realities, isn't it? right? For me, maybe just watching some videos of people falling down and getting hurt or shooting t-shirt guns in the wrong direction will just do it for me for a second, right? We want to be distracted. We don't want to stare at the tears of the oppressed. But he says, look there. Look out that window. He moves on to work. Verses 4 through 6, what does he say? I saw all the toil, all the skill and work that comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity. It's a striving after wind. It's trying to catch wind in your hands, remember? The fool folds his hands, eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. So we see a couple things here. We see two evils on either side. Verse 4 is describing the person who's trying to keep up with the Joneses. Right? We've all heard that phrase. You're seeing what other people got, and you need to have more of it just to keep up with them, or you even want more of it. Right? And so, so you want to have the best lawn, you want to have the best house. Your neighbor got the 2020 Honda Aussie van with the vacuum and all the stuff that you've wanted. I mean, I have a little van envy myself, and so what do we do? I got to get the 2021, right? You know, we got to keep up, but the problem is they're going to come out with the 2022, and around we go again, right? That's the point. We're using our work for more gain, and what does he say? It's trying to catch wind in your hands. It's not going to fulfill you. It's not going to fulfill you. We're talking about envy. We're talking about greed here, made me think of Victor Hugo's famous poem where he uh, personifies greed and envy. And he's told, uh, greed and envy are told, uh, you can have whatever you want, but whatever you get, the opposite person, greed or envy, they'll get double portion. And so envy says, I wish to be blind in one eye, right? So as to blind greed with both eyes, right? Uh, Rebecca DeYoung comments on the poem and says, the envious person resents another person's good gifts because they are superior to theirs. It's not just that the other person's better, it's that by comparison, their superiority makes you feel your own lack. So basically, whatever you have makes me aware of what I don't have. So now I need it. It's trying to catch wind in your hands. But not only is it vanity, And not only is it damaging to yourself, it's damaging to other people. Because instead of loving your neighbor in relationship, 
you compete for them with status. Instead of laying down your life and love and service for them, you protect yourself and your stuff. But this isn't the only wrong behavior when it comes to work. You see the other end of the spectrum in verse 5. The other extreme, what does it say? You have this really um, uh, graphic proverb, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. It's saying there's an opposite end of the spectrum, and that's laziness when it comes to your work. It's basically looking at the rat race and saying, I'm not going to be a part of that, so I'm going to sit at home with my jammies on and just do whatever I want all day. And he says, when you do that, your cupboards are going to go empty, and the only thing you have left to do is to be self-cannibalizing. It's a really graphic image. So we have these two dangerous extremes. There's a right way to work, though, and we see it in verse 6, this proverb, better is a single handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. So it's saying you don't want to have nothing in your hands and be like the self-cannibalizing person, and you don't want both your hands just trying to get everything that you can't even keep and catch. So what's the alternative? Having this sense of contentment with what I have. That's what this quietness is referring to. It's a picture of quietness here, of quiet satisfaction and contentment, right? This is the better way. We have this third evil, though. It's social isolation. Social isolation. Say that ten times fast. Seven through twelve. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil, for if they fall, One will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who's alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who's alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Uh, These verses are no doubt some of the best-known verses in the book itself and really in the Bible, honestly. And we often hear this passage read at weddings right? You've probably heard this read at a wedding. Um, And it can definitely apply to marriage, but that's not specifically what it's talking about. And I'm not trying to guilt anyone if you had this read at your wedding or something. But um, I don't want to leave any of us with the impression that the companionship that we were made for that's being described here cannot be experienced outside of marriage. It's not even what it's talking about, right? And I think we get this wrong so often, Um, Sam Albury wrote a book called Seven Myths About Singleness, and he said something to the effect of, we often treat singleness like a consolation prize for those who don't marry. And we use verses like this to do that. We rightly should celebrate the beauty and joy of marriage, but we wrongly set it over against singleness as the only way to experience true companionship in this life, right? I think of many Cademan Calls songs where they I've experienced lost love. One of them that stands out to me, a line says, maybe I have the gift, referring to the gift of singleness, that everyone speaks so so highly of, funny how nobody wants it. Man, we we can do a lot better in the church, guys, because we know that this is talking about something way bigger than that. This is not a wedding passage. These verses are speaking of the importance of companionship in general, friendship, right, community, like faith, family, church kind of stuff, right? And it can be marriage as well, right? But this is really, if you see in verse 7 and 8, it's chastising the workaholic who sacrifices relationship for their own personal gain. Basically, it's giving you the picture of Ebenezer Scrooge, right, who pursues greed in their life and ends up at the end of the day not having anybody around them. So they're working on Christmas, that kind of stuff. 
And then in verses 9 through 12, it's almost like a ray of light shines into the darkness and captures it really well because it's showing you this better way forward, that, that really this idea of companionship that we were made for, this relationship that we were made to have with one another is possible and it's necessary. It says we, we're talking about being relational beings, that we are made in the image of our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and that's why this is really a true statement here. That's why also when God says of Adam in Genesis 2, it's not good that man should be alone, that's a statement that has way more to do with God's design for you than it does about Adam's neediness. Because you were made in the image of God. You were made for relationship, and that's what it's highlighting here, and that's why the, the uh, event or the experience of isolation is such an evil. It's a thing that we don't want to see in this world. And what he does is he, he basically, Solomon takes you on the hand and he illustrates the need for relationship um, by way of going on a journey with somebody. Because in the ancient Near East, if you were to travel on a trip, that would be a very dangerous experience. There were pits to fall in. There were things that could trip you up. The night would be really cold and there would be a threat of robbers. That's why even today, if you were to go on a journey by yourself, you told your mom, I'm going to hike in Glacier National Park. They're going to be worried about you. Why? Because going alone is never as safe as going with somebody else. And that's exactly what these images highlight here. He's saying if you think the difference between taking a journey by yourself versus traveling with a companion uh, is, is not important, it's easy to see the value in community here because he says what? If one falls, the other helps him up. Two can keep warm together on a cold night under the stars. You can protect each other in the threat of an attack. And if two are better than one, then three is all the stronger. And so what Solomon does here is he takes this proverb that's actually rooted in ancient Sumer civilization, and what does he say? A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. What's the point? You are made for relationship, to be in community with people. And so this loneliness and isolation is thought of here as yet another evil that's not supposed to be a reality in this world. And lastly, we see this fourth evil, which is this parable in verses 13 through 16, and it's showing you this evil of, of pride, this popularity and pride. What does it say? Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who had no longer knew how to take advice. That's pride, right? I know what I need to do. I don't need to hear from you. For when he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor, I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So we have this image here of this man who doesn't think he needs community. He got it all figured out. But along comes a wise youth, poor, even in prison at one point to take his place. All's well right. The new guy's here. Things are going to be better. But no, the same people are disenchanted with him. So there's a pride in the people. That's what this is describing for you. One author uh, exclaims, he has reached a pinnacle of human glory only to be stranded there. It is yet another of our human anticlimaxes and ultimately empty achievements. We don't think in these terms, so maybe it's helpful to say, you can just think about in the sports world how a team doesn't do well, so they blame the coach, they fire the coach, right? They hire the new coach, Everyone gets excited. We have the new coach six months later. Let's fire the guy, right? You become disenchanted with the new guy, right? It's basically what this is saying here. There's a pride in the person, the king, 
and there's a pride in the people, and that ruins a community. So we see oppression, envy, isolation, and pride. He's looking around, and all he sees is the horror of evil, where he's hoping to see wrongs righted, and he sees the opposite. So what should you do with that? Well, he doesn't tell you to give up. He doesn't tell you to reach deep down and find yourself inside. Instead, he tells you to look up, look down, and look ahead. Where do we look for hope? Well, first we look up. Verse 17, what does it say? I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. So he tells us to look up, and when you look up, what do you see? You see God. What's he doing? He's a judge, right? He's going to judge. In the end, he is going to establish justice. All the wrongs are going to be righted. He's going to see to it. Because we remember here, again, that injustice is not just a horizontal phenomenon, right? Humans hurting each other. We remember here, when you look up and see God as judge, that God has made us, that we are His creation, right? And so the way that I treat you, God really cares about that because He has made us. Our, our actions affect our relationship with Him as well. So any offense against a finite human is at the same time an offense against an infinite God, and therefore it's an infinitely wicked offense. God is not going to allow it to stand. He is just, He will judge. And this kind of gets at our big question, how does God make everything beautiful in its time? If you look back up to chapter 3, verse 1, we see that phrase, for everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven. So if we were to add a line to that famous poem, after you get to verse 17, you could add a line that says, there is a time for injustice and a time for God to call the wicked to give an account. That's an added line to the poem, basically. So rather than seeing a disconnect between God's sovereign plan and all the horizontal injustices that you see in the world, right, we realize that God is going to judge. He's going to make things right. So we need to look up to see God as judge, that He's going to be faithful to do so, but that raises then an obvious question, doesn't it? If you're thinking about it well, who are the innocent? Right, who are the innocent? If you flip forward in your Bibles, just a two chapters, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And so after we look up to God, that's why we also have to look down into the grave and realize our own mortality, which has come around as a result of our own sin, right? And that's where we're told to look next, verse 18 through 21. What does he say? I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. But what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I hate to break the news to you this morning, but we are all going to die, right? We're all going to die. Uh, this is kind of that like pebble in your shoe feeling. You know, when you have a little rock in your shoe, you can get by. 
But even after you kind of tune it out, you're always kind of aware that it's there as you walk around your day, that little pebble in your shoe. And and once in a while, people point it out, and you're like, yeah, that's right. It's going to happen. That's what this is doing. We're told, remember, that we are God's creatures. I didn't make myself. God made me. And so he says, just like the animals, in that way, our lives conclude the same as theirs in death. We all have the pebble in our shoe. So this is not encouraging, just to be really clear, this is not encouraging pantheism or uh, a verse for Peta to wield or something. We can love and take care of animals, but they are not the same in value and worth. Okay, that's not at all what this is saying to you here. He's just pointing out that we have the same dependence upon our Creator for our breath. We have the same seemingly fleeting life, a vapor. We have the same physical destination, the dust. There is no advantage or gain for human beings in that regard. Okay, so, so listen to the echo in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19 that reminds us of the message of this chapter that because of human sin, because of the way that we've rebelled against God and treated one another, we've had death enter the world. And what does it say there? It says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. So what is this telling you? It's basically telling you and me that, that we're not just incapable of establishing perfect justice in the world. We're actually a part of the problem. We're actually a part of the problem. When you and I look down, we remember, oh yeah, I'm a part of the problem too, right? Our death reminds us that we are contributors to the injustice that we see. That's why famously I, I, I've always enjoyed or uh, thought it was really good, I guess, um, when a newspaper columnist posed the question, what is wrong with the world? And famously, G.K. Chesterton wrote in, me. Literally all he wrote in is me, Right? Most people thought of him as a godly man. He says, the problem is me. Why? Because he's looked down. He's looked down. Then we have this verse 21, like the animals, our spirit of life is ultimately mysterious to us. We get kind of thrown off here. It makes it more confusing than it is, um, but it's hard because the Hebrew word weather is actually not there. Uh, our, Our Bibles say, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward. It's not a question of destination here. Solomon um, says clearly in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7, the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Okay, so the question is not about whether it's go- where it's going. The question is rather, who has intimate knowledge of these spirits? And the answer is not us, only God. So we need to look up and see God our judge. We need to look down to see our own humanness and our own mortality before Him. So where does that leave us? We're still looking for the hope, right? It's not a joyful prospect. We need to walk to that final window, final window and look ahead. And I love this. It's interesting because he tries to look ahead in verse 22, but he can't because he hasn't ever seen it before. But it's interesting that he points you there, right? Because it's hard to see something or look for something you've never seen, right? You get that? I feel like when I'm home, maybe 50% of my day is looking for things that are lost. 
don't know if you have this problem. Um, but it's, it's hard to look for something, especially you've never seen. Like if, if I'm looking for a, a book or something of one of my kids, like I've seen a book before, so I kind of know what I'm looking for. Or if it's a shirt, I've, I've seen a shirt before, I know what a shirt looks like. But if I'd never seen like Mandalorian or something and my six-year-old says I'm looking for Grogu, I would have no idea that he's talking about Baby Yoda. I'd have no idea. I would have no idea what I'm looking for, but I could meander around the house looking for Grogu. But if I've never seen what I'm looking for, I'm not going to find it, right? We, we've all done this before. We've all tried to look for things we've never seen. It's hard. And that's what's happening here. He's never seen it. Look at where he points you, though. I saw. There's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. We've heard that a lot already. But then here's this question. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Who can bring him to see what will be after him? He's pointing you forward, but he's never seen it. That's the question that gets me. I think it's interesting because he doesn't say what can bring him to see after. He's not searching for knowledge. He's not searching for a thing or a breakthrough or some new information that's going to help him. Someone needs to help me see. Someone needs to bring me to see what will be after. That's what he's saying. He's pondering a question. What happens after I'm gone? How will I know? Where will I be? What will be of the earth? I mean, do not forget, this is like the most powerful man on the face of the planet. He's the king of Israel, ruling at the height of Israel's glory and influence, and he looks out upon the world and sees the brokenness, and he can't fix it. He's a part of the problem. How do you move forward with that? Well, I'll put it to you this way. If you're out swimming in the Columbia today, the Columbia River, you're crazy, first of all. Uh, but secondly, um, let's just say you're swimming and you begin drowning. What do you need? Well, you need two things I suggest to you. You need someone who's willing to jump in and save you. But you also need that person to be willing and able to swim, right? right? If you have someone who's willing to jump in and save you, but they cannot swim, that's not really helpful, is it? Right? That's going to be bad for both of you. If you have someone who's able to swim and save you, but they're not willing to jump in, that doesn't help you either. You need someone who sees you, wants to jump in and save you, and they can swim. That's what you need. That's his problem. He's stumped. He can't see forward. But can we? As he's moving your shoulders to walk to this other window of the house, it's a window that helps you see forward beyond the grave. It's actually a window of grace. And as you look out that window, it actually points you back. It makes you look back. You realize you're looking back because as you look out that window, you look and you see God as the holy, just judge. And therefore, He must punish our mistreatment of other people. And He does so in one of two ways. One, in the end, pouring out his just judgment on you, that day when you stand before him. Or, he does so 
in the cross of his son Jesus, where he pours out his just judgment against our sin on him, who willingly and graciously takes it in your place if you believe in him. Guys, we need more than justice to put this world back together. We need mercy. We need mercy. And in the cross of Jesus, we have both. We have both. The only way that unjust humans like you and me and everyone else can have both is through that cross of Jesus. And so when we look back, when we look out that window of grace, we see Jesus, who is the true king, and he's still reigning today. He's seated on his throne. And when you read about him being seated on his throne in the book of Ephesians, what does it say? It says that he is rich, just like a king would be, just like we would expect. But what is he rich in? It says he's rich in mercy. Do you realize that's the only thing in the Bible that is said that God is rich in, is mercy. He is seated on his throne, and he is rich in mercy. The king will reign forever and ever rich in mercy. How is he rich in mercy? Well, your jaw will drop as you consider how God the judge sent his son into the world to not wear a robe of justice, but to be stripped of his garments, not to carry a gavel, but to carry a cross, not to use his power to oppress, but to actually be oppressed for you. It might just be better if I read for you, and I believe this will be on the screen, Isaiah 53, that says, all we like sheep have gone astray, right? That, that's the wise youth who said, I don't need any advice. We've turned everyone to our own way, and the Lord has laid on Jesus, right, the iniquity of us all, the sin. What does it say? He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, he looked down. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken by the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. He never mistreated another person. And what did God the judge do? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Right, do you see, God will not only right all wrongs at the end, he has entered into this life below the sun. Why? Because he has seen that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is evil. That is why God came, because he saw the grievous swap. And what did he do? He stood as the righteous one in the place of the wicked. He who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And if you think of that grievous exchange in verse 16, I mean, that's like the most gracious exchange I've ever heard of in my life. That when he looks out the window, he can, he can swim, and he's willing to come, and that's why he came. What does this mean for you today, then, as you look around, and as you look up, and as you look down, and as you try to look forward? What does that mean for you? Well, it means you not only know that you are from dust, 
and to dust you will return, but you are but dust, and Jesus has entered the dust to raise you to glory. That's what it means. So if this is who you are, then how then should you live? What would it look like to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of that great exchange? Well, for starters, it looks like being happy to live under His perfect rule. And what He says is right and just, you seek that. That's starters. But in the meantime, we see God has brought about a provisional solution as we look out the windows of this world. Jesus is going to come and He's going to set all things right, yes, but He has already come. And through faith in Him, we are given His Spirit and we are raised to walk in that new life. No longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness is what Romans says. I don't know about you, but I love the meaning of names. Um, At times it drives my wife nuts, but I love the meaning of names, so knowing what someone's name means is really interesting to me. And I'm curious, do you know what the name Christopher means? The name Christopher actually comes from two Greek words. The first word is Christos, the second is Pharaoh. It literally means to carry Christ. So if you are a Christian, you are literally a Christ carrier. Your, Your name is Christopher, I don't know if you knew that, but if you want to change your name, now's the time, okay? Literally, that's what this word means. So in a real sense, when you place your faith in Jesus, you don't just say, I hope He'll receive me when I die, and I hope He'll come back and make all things new. I realize that I am now a Christ carrier in this world. So how then should I live? Well, it would look like me loving my neighbor, right? It would look like me coming alongside the oppressed to comfort them in strength, not just with words, but in real strength. Even though power is on the side of the oppressor, that you come by, there's not a vacancy there, right? Not telling them that, that you'll help them because, uh, become the oppressor, but that God, the one with all authority has come and He has actually suffered alongside of them in strength. I mean, I can think of multiple mercy ministries as a church. Think about years of, of people trying to help others uh, in the area of adoption, foster care, Right? As you think about all the tears of the oppressed, think about, I mean, I was just driving down the street the other day, there's the regional center being built in our city for DHS. What do you think Christians should do in response to that? That's a building of the oppressed, right? Helping the immigrants, those suffering from addiction, those suffering from their spouse's um, sexual addictions and affairs. Think of abuse, bringing the healing and hope of Jesus where evil has set up its throne to carry Him into your workplace. And as you walk alongside those that are driven by envy and they're never satisfied with wealth, you have those hands folded of quietness and contentment, doing good work. Carrying Christ into relationships where there's hurt and loneliness and helping them experience the goodness of deep, true relationship. But more than that, I think just us going out tomorrow or staying in or whatever you're doing and, and having all these opportunities to pray and listen and care and step in and come alongside people with strength, that's our call, right? But as we do that, as we do that, we point them to Jesus, don't we? Why? Why wouldn't I? I would never do that if it weren't for Him coming alongside of me. That's the only reason. 
This is why it should be on the screen. Second Corinthians says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Guys, I have seen a great evil under the sun. And so have you. And we've contributed to that. But the good news is, so has God. He's seen it too. And He hasn't contributed to it. He did something about it. He did something about it. It drove Him to the cross so that mercy could come to you. He's changed millions of lives and counting, all new creatures. So many of you have experienced that. There is an evil under the sun, but there is also a Savior under the sun. And so now he's called us out to carry him into this world. You may be from the dust, but through Jesus, we've been raised to glory. We've been raised to glory. Let's all stand to our feet. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go to our time of response. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we are so thankful that you, God, have come. You have suffered in our place. Lord, we were reminded this morning um, that in the place of wickedness is where you stood and you, you received um, the penalty for our sin that you did not deserve, Lord, that was rightfully ours. Lord, you are a gracious God and we are so thankful we are in awe, Lord, of how um, you've come in order to make all things new, and you are beginning that now in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that as your people, we would really be those called out ones who go out and share the good news and walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, Lord. Would you bring about a rightful conviction upon our hearts, Lord, where there's needed places for that? And Lord, would you give us a deeper trust and faith in you this morning? a greater awe, Lord, of your grace and your mercy. Give us that hope, Lord, that we, we long to see um, in its full fruition. Lord, as we look out and we see a lot of brokenness in our world, Lord, help us to um, be able to see how you've come and entered into that and that we have a lasting hope. Help us to not despair. Help us to move forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.